Hello and welcome to episode 29 of On Liberty, coming to you live from the Center for Independent Studies in Sydney, Australia. I'm your host, Salvatore Babonis. My guest today is Professor Elizabeth Laris of the University of Mary Washington, author of Politics and Society in Contemporary China, second edition. Elizabeth, Elizabeth Laris, how, how are, you? are you? I'm very good. Thank you very much. And you? Oh, good. good. And thanks for joining us today. How's the mood in the nation's capital these days? Wow, really quite frenetic. It, it really is. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think you kind of saw the tension in that first, first presidential, presidential debate. And so, um, yeah, I mean, we're how many days, like three weeks away from, you know, the election. A lot of people are voting already. Um, and, and then to make it even more exciting, President Trump tested positive for COVID and he goes <laughs> off, you know, to, to, to the military hospital. And then he comes out, you know, like, like, like the honey badger and he's ready to take everyone back on again. And so this has been quite an exciting time. Well, he's probably jealous that Boris Johnson got to come back on Easter, risen from the dead. <laughs> if only Trump could have had that, he would have been thrilled. Yeah, I can't top that. Can't, can't top, top that. <laughs> uh, look, on October 5th, you gave an interview to The Diplomat magazine in which you said, quote, modern Taiwan has always existed in a U.S.-China-Taiwan triangle. What do you mean by that? Well, you know, the formal name of the government on Taiwan is the Republic of China, which was established on the mainland back in 1911, right, when Sun Yat-sen and the revolutionaries deposed uh, the last emperor there. And then um, after World War II, um, the nationalists, you know, lost mainland China to the communists and retreated to the island of Taiwan. And so that ROC, the United States has supported the ROC since the 1930s, when, oh my gosh, we sent a lot of American financial military aid over to the nationalists, and also Claire Chenault's Flying Tigers um, were taking off uh, doing bombing raids against the Japanese from Kunming and Yunnan province, that's down by, mm -hmm. you know, Vietnam. And so ever since then, the United States has really supported Taiwan uh, financially, like throughout the Cold War. And then um, now that Taiwan, of course, is an economic powerhouse, we don't need to um, support it financially, but we do continue to support it militarily. And we sell arms. You know, over the years, we have sold many, many uh, tens of billions of dollars of arms um, to Taiwan. And then that, of course, drives uh, China crazy. They say that's a violation of their one China principle. Um, where, you know, they say there is one China and Taiwan is a part of China. Right. Now, to be honest, you know, the United States has what's called a one China policy, where we, um, in order to normalize relations um, with uh, China back in 79, we agreed in preliminary talks in 72 and then in 79 that, yeah, there's one China and Taiwan is a part of China, but we never defined if it was the PRC or the ROC, right? Okay. And then also in, in one of the communiques, the Shanghai communiques, we say we acknowledge that it is China's view mm -hmm. that Taiwan is a part of the PRC. We do not say that the United States says that Taiwan is a part of the PRC, right? right. And so, you know, to normalize relations, we had to get around the so-called Taiwan question. Okay. And so what the United States has always wanted is peaceful resolution of the Taiwan question. We don't even say peaceful unification, 
But but you see, in China, in Beijing, of course, they don't tell the Chinese people that our China policy is, is really different from the one China principle, right? And and also, um, you know, they say the United States is committed to peaceful unification. We have not said that. Okay. Right. So now on Taiwan, you have um, a government. You've got um, a government. You've got a state, an economy there, a separate foreign policy, a separate currency, military from that on mainland China. And the United States still supports the ROC on Taiwan. And, and, and every time that we do you know, something positive toward Taiwan, recognize their national day, um, sell them more arms, then China is annoyed. Right. I think it's very interesting that difference between <laughs> what you called and what apparently China calls the one China principle versus what the United States and many other countries have, which is a one China policy. <laughs> China's one China principle, is, as I understand you saying it, says that Taiwan is part of China. But other countries don't necessarily that recognize is, that. Taiwan is the PRC. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Where the United States just said Taiwan is a part of China, but we don't define what China All is. Right. All right. Yeah. Our, uh, the United States then is not necessarily opposed to the peaceful reunification of China. That is, if Taiwan were to vote to join the PRC, would the United States, you think, have any particular objection? Um, you know, official U.S. policy is, <coughs> excuse me, um, official U.S. policy is peaceful <coughs> resolution. Sorry. Right. <coughs> you know, in Virginia this time of year, the leaves are changing. <laughs> and so, yeah, they're <laughs> in Australia this time outside of my office we're, window. We're, in right. Australia this time of year, we're full of pollen, so we, we got yeah, it both exactly. ways. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, of course. So, um, yeah, so, so official U.S. policy is. Um, that the two sides need to peacefully work it out. And so if if Taiwan then were to say, yeah, we want to join China, that's their business. Now, honestly, you know, the ROC on Taiwan, at least, okay, I should say that the Nationalist Party, um, what in America we call the Guomindang, right? The Nationalist Party um, had for many, many years, of course, that platform of eventual reunification with mainland China, um, but under a democratic regime in Beijing. And so, um, and you, you look back at like Sun Yat-sen, Three Principles of the People, the idea was eventual democracy. And so, you know, Taiwan, at least the nationalists and the people who are looking for unification with mainland China would say that only under a democratic regime. Now, um, of course, what has happened on Taiwan is over the generations and over the decades, younger people in Taiwan identify less with mainland China than their, let's say their grandparents did or their parents, right? And so a lot more people now identify as Taiwanese, okay? And Taiwanese was the term that people used to use for the people who lived in Taiwan before 47 or came over before 1947, before the nationalists came, right? And then the people who came after um, 47 um, were, were actually called like mainlanders. On oh, really? Taiwan. Yeah, but now there's a blurring essentially of that uh, because of the generations, right? Intermarriage and then generations. So as Taiwan identi identity, um, it, it moves further and further away from mainland China. There are fewer you know, people that are saying we really want to unify with the mainland. Of course, you know, the polls have shown 
for the last decades that most people on Taiwan uh, you know, preferred the status quo because China is not a democracy. So they're not saying unification now. They're not saying independence now. And then you get it, then you have to get into the weeds, like under what conditions would you favor one over the other? Um, but right now, most people, you know, on Taiwan are, are just kind of like, you know, we're flying under the radar here. Let's, you know, we've got a good gig here. We're, we're you know, we live in a democracy, um, you know, uh, COVID aside, we really do have a thriving economy and um, and we live on a beautiful island. And so let's let's just maintain that status quo. Right. Let uh, me just give a quick shout out to uh, Anthony, Cassie, NSH. Uh, Christopher, thanks for watching today. We'll get to questions in just a few minutes. So please do get your questions in in the chat box and we'll get to them uh, in about 10 minutes. Uh, Elizabeth, let me uh, ask you to follow up on the Taiwan Relations Act. Now, you referred to that earlier when you said the U.S. sells uh, military equipment to Taiwan, yet that can be sometimes controversial in the U.S. It's not guaranteed that Taiwan can buy whatever it wants from the United States. What are the stakes for Taiwan of America's November 3rd election? Will that have any effect on American support for Taiwan? Um, I think that support, U.S. support for Taiwan will continue after the election uh, because Congress historically and overall has been quite supportive of Taiwan or the ROC, you know, on Taiwan. As a matter of fact, Madam John Kai-shek, uh, way back during World War II, during Japanese occupation of mainland China, addressed both houses of Congress. And, and then, you know, was able to bring back significant amounts, you know, of aid uh, to, um, to the mainland where they were still fighting the Japanese at that time. And so ever since, you know, the 1940s, um, the US Congress has been supportive of the ROC, whether it was the mainland or on Taiwan. You know, as a matter of fact, this outgoing Congress, the 116th Congress, has been the most critical of China. There have been 400 pieces of legislation related in some way to China. Most of those have been critical, okay? And so, um, and, and of course, um, COVID, you know, the outbreak of COVID and the origins of COVID and, and, and Beijing's opaqueness over the origins of COVID has really, you know, stirred the ire of many countries. And, and obviously we know, you know, Pe President Trump. And, and so um, Congress, you know, is, is, is not pleased with China because of that. And also Taiwan um, was able to do very well in limiting um, the, the spread of infection, you know, there. And so Taiwan, you know, comes out looking really good. And so the Congress looks and goes, hey, you know, look at Taiwan, they're like this model case. China, they're still being, you know, opaque. And, and you know that they threatened Australian trade when Australia called for an independent investigation to the origins of COVID. So, you know, after November 3rd, a lot really depends on who comes into the next administration. So if it is a second Trump administration, it depends on his personnel picks. Um, you know, Randy Shriver now over at uh, Project 2049 um, had a position, you know, in, in the, um, the Trump administration and was pro-Taiwan, as were, you know, some other people in the administration, some who are still there and some who have left. Okay. We really don't know who's going to come into a Biden administration 
and if they're going to be as favorably disposed toward Taiwan. So we need to look at the personnel that come in. So, so that we don't know, but I could say with pretty good certainty that Congress will continue um, right. to support Taiwan. And remember, TRA, Taiwan Relations Act of 1975, is U.S. law. It's not a treaty. So under U.S. law, the United States is legally obligated to help Taiwan defend itself. And how do we do that? We sell arms to Taiwan. All right. Look, you mentioned there the coronavirus pandemic, and we've all been very impressed. I mean, Taiwan has really burnished its image by its uh, very aggressive coronavirus response and its enormous success uh, in fighting coronavirus. What lessons can Australia and other countries learn from Taiwan about the battle against Chinese influence? I mean, if we're willing to learn from Taiwan about coronavirus, can we learn from Taiwan's experience more broadly when it comes to dealing with China? Well, ironically, um, one of the reasons that Taiwan was able to deal with COVID is they didn't have as many Chinese tourists. Because when Tsai Ing-wen, remember when Tsai Ing-wen became president and she refused to accept the 1992 consensus that is mainland China and, and Taiwan have different views on the definition of the term China, right? right. So when she refused to accept that consensus, uh, China started to put the screws on Taiwan. And one of the things it did, it said, we are not going to give, um, we're not going to approve applications for these tour groups to bring, you know, oodles of tourists over to Taiwan. Right. And so you didn't have as many tourists coming over for like Chinese New Year, bringing COVID with them because they hadn't been coming in groups, in large groups for like three years. Okay. But, um, but, you know, in Australia, you've kind of seen some of that, you know, as well, you know, during COVID or actually the Chinese students, right? Not being right. able to, to come to your universities. Um, Taiwan has been able, I think, to get some, I should say, you know, significant um, U.S. support as well as support from other countries in, in its efforts to, um, to, to put off, you know, Chinese influence. Right. Um, certainly a lot of the businesses there, um, you know, in Taiwan, they have significant business interests in mainland China. So they're in a bit of a tight spot mm -hmm. and the government is encouraging, you know, them to come back. You know, I know in Australia, you sell a lot of your raw materials to mainland China. That makes you vulnerable, right? Taiwan was vulnerable when China said, we're not going to send the tourists over and it hurt southern Taiwan. It hurt the tourism industry. So what they did then is um, President Tsai's administration um, announced, you know, a, a southeast policy, which was much like previous Li Donghui's, you know, southbound policy. And that is encourage tourists from Southeast Asia, oh. encourage investment for Southeast Asia, encourage Taiwan businesses um, to either relocate from China um, back to Taiwan or away from China to Southeast Asia. And um, really, really did a lot to welcome um, Southeast Asians and other tourists. It, you know, it, it, it's making Taiwan like Muslim friendly. There are hotels that are Muslim friendly and there are prayer rooms in Taoyuan Airport and also in Taipei Main Railway Station. Mm. And, and, you know, you, you've been there, all those like corridors underneath that, that you go through in the arcades, you know, they have Muslim prayer rooms, they have halal, um, you know, restaurants now. 
And so they have really tried to look away from China to really try to bring people in from other places to boost the economy because China is trying to hurt Taiwan's economy. Oh, wow. Uh, Look, we're going to get to questions in just a moment. And those of you who may be watching for the first time, especially Professor Laris' students, if you're out there watching live, just get in the YouTube chat box uh, at the bottom in the chat. Just type your question and we will pose questions to uh, Professor Laris in just a minute. In the meantime, now's my opportunity to thank you for watching and to beg for your support. (laughs) The Center for Independent Studies is, as the name implies, an entirely independent think tank, meaning it accepts no government funding, and that includes coronavirus relief funding. So the CIS has had to ride out the coronavirus epidemic purely with contributions from people like you. It does no government research, it does no sponsored research, but only accepts contributions from individuals and corporations to uh, support its general programs. That's what the money's for. If you can contribute, we really appreciate it. If you click the support link, you can become a member of CIS for just 40 Australian dollars. If you're in the US, that's even less, it's something like 33 US dollars. If you're already a member, or if you can upgrade to the $250 membership level, I will send you a personally signed copy of <laughs> Liberty and Liberalism as a thank you. So please do uh, consider joining CIS or upgrading your CIS membership. Also, obviously, please like the video. We have had something like 40 people watching so far. Please press the like button because if you like the video, it will be shown to more people on YouTube. So if you want other people to see what you're seeing, please like the video, of course, subscribe to the channel. And uh, we'd love to show you future videos, future episodes of On Liberty, which is a weekly program. Uh, Liz, we have some questions coming in from viewers. I'm gonna start with Christopher. Christopher asks, China has been pushing a low risk strategy in the South China Sea. Do you see Chairman Xi Jinping changing to a high risk strategy in relation to Taiwan? And when he says low risk, I assume he means low risk for China. (laughs) Right, okay. Um, I don't think that he needs to move to a high risk policy. He certainly, you know, in the South China Sea, his low risk policy has gotten him what he wants, right? Um, um, those land reclamation projects, island building, we call those gray zone tactics that you're, you're, you're winning victories without firing a shot. You know, you're acting aggressive, but it's aggressive short of war. Now, regarding Taiwan, yeah, a lot of people ask, is, is, is Beijing going to be aggressive toward Taiwan? And certainly the rhetoric coming out of Beijing is becoming more aggressive. You know, um, Xi Jinping's uh, address to Taiwan compatriots last New Year's, we're talking like January 1, 2019, you know, was saying that we really want to see the unification of Taiwan with mainland China. And and Wang Jisu and some China hawks, you know, in, in, in mainland China are essentially saying the runways, you know, becoming pretty short and that um, we're not going to you know, wait forever for this unification. And they're talking about amending the 2005 anti, uh, the 2005 Security Act, excuse me, um, to, to say that, to, to, to allow the use of force to unite Taiwan with China. Um, right now, Xi Jinping doesn't want to take that risk. Look, Xi Jinping is not going to use a high risk, risk strategy unless he is 100% sure he is going to succeed. And right now he is not. Uh, Taiwan, yet certainly the balance of military um, power has shifted 
from Taiwan to China over the last you know, few years. Uh, but that doesn't mean that Taiwan is defenseless. It has air defenses. It's natural um, topography is formidable for any kind of an amphibious type assault. And then, um, you know, uh, Taiwan, it does have arms that we have, you know, sold. It's got, you know, the U.S. has sold to them. They have early warning devices. They've got missiles. They've got drones. And so, you know, again, um, Xi Jinping's not going to bust a move unless he is 100 percent sure that he's going to be successful and that United States is not going to be able to come to Taiwan's defense. And that's still a big question mark out there. So does he want to take that risk? Now, now, I have to say, you know, also some of the rhetoric that we have seen coming out of Beijing is saying that, you know what, if we're going to bust a move, this is a good time because the U.S. is distracted with the upcoming elections and also with COVID. Um, but, but, but I think that type of rhetoric coming out of, you know, that we're hearing indicates that there's a debate within the party. It doesn't indicate that hands down China is going to move against Taiwan. Right. I think if we want to see the Communist Party regime fall, all we have to have is video of Xi Jinping busting a move at karaoke. And uh, that might be the end of it. Oh, look, Zach asks many strategists, and he says particularly in Japan, consider U.S. defense commitment to Taiwan as a kind of canary in the coal mine of the American alliance's credibility in the Indo-Pacific. Is this fair or fair appraisal, or is the Taiwan case really exceptional and not an indicator of America's broader commitment to the Indo-Pacific? Yeah, I, mean, I, th I think Taiwan is, is it's a bit, a bit of um, an exception. I mean, we still, you know, Taiwan is not, it's, it's not a diplomatic ally, and it is not a military ally. ally. Um, you know, um, eh, we... Until 1979, we did have a military a defense agreement um, with Taiwan, the 1954 Mutual Defense Agreement, but that had to be um, abrogated when we normalized relations with mainland China in 1979. However, we do have um, mutual defense agreements with the ROK and South Korea, uh, with Japan, with the Philippines, regardless of Duterte's anti-Americanism, the Philippine military is 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 very um, pro the United States. Oh, really? And still very close to the United States. Yeah, and you know, down in Singapore, we have um, very very liberal, you know, use of um, Jiangyi Port, you know, and and um, and 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 other areas. You know, we're over, you know, in in Guam is our territory. So we have, of course, a strong presence there, and we do have these alliances. And so, you know. I, you, you could certainly say that if we started to get wishy-washy um, to, to uh, you know, quote or, or channel Margaret Thatcher, you know, if we got wobbly on Taiwan, I, I think that would be cause for nervousness in the region. But so far, we have not gone wobbly, right? I mean, people look at President Trump and they say, oh, he's just using Taiwan as a you know a poker chip as a card as a bargaining chip and yet and yet his administration in less than four years has approved six going on to seven arms deals for billions of dollars beyond what the obama administration did again the 116th congress which is you know was our congress is you know two years running right and so for the last two years that congress 
had passed like 400 pieces of legislation, much of it critical, you know, to China. Right. And so, um, and, and to be clear, this is bipartisan because Republicans don't yes. control the House of Representatives. Is that correct? Absolutely. Oh, oh, let me tell you, China is the thing that brings Republicans and Democrats together. And you see, you you see the media how difficult it is to bring the two parties together and agree on anything, right? I mean, I mean, yeah, yeah. I, you you've got the you know the the vice presidential candidate saying. Yeah, I'll be the first one in line to get a vaccine if the science says you need a vaccine. But when the moderator said, well, if President Trump tells you to get a vaccine, will you get it? She says no. <laughs> so, <laughs> like that, that's how that's how far like we are on on things, you know, it's like. And so but but China is the one thing that, you know, we, we can agree on. And, and you know what? Taiwan gets, you know, a support from that fallout in, in, in a sense. But the commitment, I you know, is still there. And, and, and you know what? I mean, the latest out of the Pentagon is that the United States is going to increase the size of its Navy. And, you know, more of that is going to be sent to the Asia Pacific because U.S., you know, does recognize the threat there. Right. So I want to give a quick call out to Courtney. Thanks for watching. We had another question from Christopher is Beijing functioning in an ideological straitjacket, believing that Taiwanese people can be induced to rise up against or to oppose splitism? That is, is, is Beijing misgaging uh, public opinion in Taiwan and what they can do, accomplish? I don't think so. I think they're very aware of what is going on in Taiwan and very concerned by it. And they see that fewer and fewer people there identify with mainland China. And so, like, it used to be said that, you know, time was on China's side. And certainly if you look at the military equation, yes, China has put billions of dollars into its defense. And, you know, look, when I was first going to China, the Chinese Navy was a bucket of bolts, literally a bucket of bolts. Right now they have a pretty formidable Navy. Uh, you know, can all of their branches work and sync together and joint operations in a wartime situation? We haven't seen that, but we've certainly seen, you know, a lot of war games. Um, and so um, so so we, so we say, OK, militarily. Right. Time is on China's side. And yet China's looking at Taiwan and saying as time goes by, they want less and less to do with us. Right. And you know what? Our labor in China is becoming pretty expensive. Um, what stops Taiwan companies from, you know, going to Vietnam, Malaysia, Philippines, even even, you know, Mexico? And and taking their businesses there, they'll take a lot of jobs, right, out of, out of China. And so um, I I don't think that um, China is you know it has its eyes closed, is is um, blind in an ideological straitjacket. I think if anything, Christopher, I think if anything, you know, the military has become very strong has very good relations with Xi Jinping. Xi Jinping has become very strong. Okay. And so if the military has been saying for the last 10, you know, 15, 20 years that at some point we may need to use force against Taiwan to unite Taiwan with China, at some point they might just say, we're going to make good on that. Right. right? This uh, is when 
they think it's possible. I don't think they're there yet. This is probably a good opportunity to talk for a minute about your book. And I know you have a copy there that you can show people, but this is Politics and Policy. I'm sorry, uh, Politics and Society in Contemporary China. Second edition is just out. You study Chinese politics. So I want to put that to you. Just what you raised. I mean, how much unity is there within the Communist Party in China or more broadly within Chinese society behind the Communist Party? Society is difficult to gauge. Society's support. I mean, you know, on the face, it looks like they're very supportive of the party. And and it appears that they are very supportive of their national leadership. Okay. Now, 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 which is interesting because, you know, there's tremendous, tremendous amount of um, censorship in China. So in the Chinese press and the Chinese media, people can criticize, right, their local government officials in the media. But you can't criticize Xi Jinping. And and so, you know, that's so you're going to end up with like, you know, an unbalanced picture of what's going on over there. Xi Jinping has won a lot of support for his anti-corruption campaign. And, and, you know, if you, if you take people aside, some people would say, oh, it's a bunch of eyewash. Other people will say, yeah, finally, you know, but, you know, and, and, and sometimes, you know, sometimes it appears that Xi Jinping is a, a rock star. OK, but now also um, China has uh, they rolled out nationally the social credit system right. where you get social credit, much like we get good financial credit. if We pay off our credit cards on time. Um, they get good social credit if they put out instant messages, they tweet, they publish, you know, um, anything that's, you know, traceable, that's positive about the government. And then they, you know, they, they lose points, you know, they get demerits if they, if they don't pay their credit cards on time, if they jaywalk, if they say negative things, right? So it's kind of hard to gauge. But, but honestly, I do believe a lot of people support at least the, the party because the party is taking credit for China's um, economic reforms, China's economic rise, for relative peace and stability there. They look at American cities and they see what's going on there and that's not happening, you know, Chinese cities, right? And um, so they're looking at the peace, you know, equation, they're looking at national security, they're looking at the economy, and, 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 um, and China is becoming a global player. Right. It has quite a presence on the U.N. Right. Oh, for goodness sakes. Now it's on the U.N. Council on Human Rights. Right? <laughs> yes, and, yes, and, just and, elected. Yeah. With Russia. And, China, <laughs> and Chinese nationals lead five U.N. related agencies. That is more than any other country. I think no other country has more than one or two. I think China has five. So they look at China and they're like, they're proud of their country and they're going to give the Communist Party, it's the only game in town, right? They're going to give them that credit, right? Um, so so that's society. Now, the party, um, it's kind of, I think it's hard, you know, for a lot of people to know what's going on, you know, behind the walls of Zhongnanhai. You know, that's where the party lives, right? In this enclave right next to Forbidden City. And so, yeah, I'd love to be a fly on the wall. But we know, we know that there are periodically and, and now party divisions. There are factions. We know that, right? I mean, there's the the, 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 the Zhao Ziyang Shanghai faction and then the Hu Jintao faction, and they have their men in key places and they disagree. 
And so there is, you know, do not think, of course, that the, the CCP is monolithic. You know, there are factions and there are disagreements. Um, and you really have to be good at reading the tea leaves to see where those are going. But I think we can see this debate over Taiwan is illustrative of the divisions in the CCP. You know, do we wait? Do we use gray zone tactics? Do we do we rattle the saber a bit more? Or do we, you know, lie low? Mm. Uh, here in, in Australia, there are especially close uh, personal, cultural, historical ties to Hong Kong. And so people have been following the Hong Kong situation and new security laws in Hong Kong, especially closely here in Australia. Of course, one country, two systems has entirely been exposed as a <laughs> fantasy in Hong Kong now. How is that being seen in Taiwan? You know, one country, two systems was originally formulated to apply to Taiwan. Uh, Chinese leaders, you know, devised it as a way to unify Taiwan with the mainland back in the 80s, right? Uh, but Taiwan didn't bite. And so then when Margaret Thatcher was negotiating with Deng Xiaoping back in 1984, then they came up with this agreement of one country, two systems, which was enshrined in um, Hong Kong's basic law. And that's the mini constitution for Hong Kong. Now, the Hong Kong situation is different. It was a colony. It was a royal colony and administered by Great Britain. And there was no question that it would revert to Chinese administration on July 1st, 1997. Um, but in Taiwan, the Taiwan, the question is still there. Um, and, and, and by the way, you know, in Hong Kong, the Hong Kong people had no choice in that, right? right. It was their future was negotiated by Beijing and, and, and Whitehall, you know, London. Um, and, but, but in Taiwan, people do have a say about their future. They're not a colony to be handed over to the mainland. Um, no politician on Taiwan is talking about one country, two systems, because they all know it's, you know, it's dead on arrival. That is just a non-issue. Now, the protests in Hong Kong in um, the summer of 2019 um, and, and even protests before that, when China tried to impose an anti-sedition law back in 2003 and, and throughout, you know, the, the last, you know, a decade or more, uh, the umbrella movement, right, a few years ago, that resonated with a lot of people in Taiwan, a lot of the young people who have become really a political force on the island, um, but also the politicians there. And so um, it, it, it really, I, I, I know that those protests in summer of um, 2019 helped Tsai Ing-wen's uh, re-election because her popularity was really low. She was down in the polls. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, 2018, Taiwan had, uh, like, they call them local elections, you know, county magistrate, blah, 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 things like that nature. And KMT wiped the floor, you know, with, with the DPP. I mean, the DPP lost so badly. And usually that's like a bellwether, like, for the next election, right? And so... Um, and so people really thought that Tsai Ing-wen was not going to do well. And then and then the protests in Hong Kong. And the next thing you know, she's she's supporting the protesters. Right. And some of them ended up in Taiwan. And and so her her approval ratings went way up and that helped her um, re-election prospects. Hmm. We're about to wrap up in just a, a minute or two. But I do want to ask you at least one final question about 
Taiwan, and it does have to do with democracy. Of course, our viewers may not be aware that Taiwan was not always a democracy. There was a you know, white terror in the 19, late 1940s, 1950s, 1960s. There, you know, was, there were no elections at all until the what end of the 1980s or, or 1990s. Is that right, uh, Liz? Uh, but now, of course, Taiwan is a robust liberal democracy. To what extent is that a demonstration effect for the entire Chinese-speaking world, whether for Hong Kong, for China, PRC China itself, for people who may be living in Southeast Asia who are of Chinese heritage and who themselves don't have democracy, even for Singapore, which has a rather imperfect democracy compared to Taiwan. To what extent are their eyes on Taiwan as this first and best democracy of China? Yeah, it really is an inspirational story. Uh, Taiwan was under martial law from 1947 until the mid-1980s. So we're talking about like 40 years. And then and then it goes through this era of, you know, nascent democracy, uh, culminating in the first peaceful transfer of power from the Nationalist Party to an opposition party in the year 2000. So, you know, yeah. And while people would say, OK, Taiwan is a, a democracy, let's say, in, you know, in the 90s, um, academics, you know, say, you know, officially Taiwan became a democracy in the year 2000, which really isn't that long ago. Right. So it is an inspirational story for, um, you know, for people, for politicians that are living in governments where, you know, um, either it's soft authoritarian, it's one party regime or you know, dominant political parties always seem to to, to win. Um, and so, yeah, I, the, the takeaway is it certainly is is possible um, in Asia. Um, I don't know how infectious it is. I, I, I haven't seen a very like positive infection rate there. Um, but it's something that, you know, people and politicians can point to and can use in their arguments and say, look, you know, they did it. And and we can do so. Now, I am going to slip in one little final question. I know you're a professor at the University of Mary Washington in the Washington, D.C. suburbs. Who is Mary Washington? <laughs> OK, um, Mary Washington was George's mother, George Washington's mother. I know people confuse her with Martha. Right. Uh-huh. Martha Washington was uh, George's wife. Mary was his mom. And uh, she lived here in Fredericksburg. As a matter of fact, Fredericksburg is George Washington's boyhood home. He was um, raised across the river. He was born, um, you know, several miles away, but his family moved to um, an area across the river called Ferry Farm. And that is where uh, George threw the coin, right, the silver dollar across the river. It's the Rappahannock River. It's not the Potomac. And every year there is a, a, a... coin toss competition to try to replicate that. And um, and so, yeah, so, so George was raised in the area. And when he was off fighting the Revolutionary War, um, his mother went over to a rock, a very large, I guess a boulder, um, that is close to the university here. It's called Meditation Rock. And she would go there and she would pray for his safe return. And he did. He, he returned safely. His mother's prayers worked and her house is still here. It's it's, you know, a little tourist, you know, attraction. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, this this area has very, very strong connection to George Washington and his mother. 
Oh, wow. So Australians watching, next time you go visit Washington, D.C., be sure to take a day trip out to Fredericksburg, Virginia. (laughs) Professor Elizabeth Laris, thank you very much for joining us today. You're welcome. My pleasure. Our producer is normally Emily Holmes. She's out today. Executive producer is Max Hawk Weaver, taking over all duties today. Thank you, Max. Director of the CIS is Tom Switzer. And next week, we will be hosting the irrepressible Sophie York. Please join us then. Thanks, everyone, for watching.